I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Well, I wanna welcome everybody this evening. Thank you for joining us for this um, monthly citizen webinar by the Ashbrook Center. For those of you who don't know, I'm Jeff Sickinga. I'm the executive director of the Ashbrook Center. We're an independent educational center located at Ashland University here in Ashland, Ohio. Um, our mission is has been since 1983 to educate our fellow Americans, whether those are students, teachers, or citizens, in the history and founding principles of our country. And we also we hope in the habits of reflection and choice that we think are really necessary to perpetuate the Republic. And as an educational center, uh, I always say, that you know, we have a certain understanding of education that we try to follow even in a webinar format like this, which is that we think education is not definitely not about indoctrination and not just about information, but about pursuing and discovering the truth. And we always follow Aristotle's old dictum, all human beings by nature desire to know. And then we add, but they don't wanna to be told. <laughs> they wanna to discover it for themselves. And we found that really a great way to discover the truth for yourself is through conversation. So we want to have a conversation tonight about a really important topic that has reemerged this past spring as an important topic in the news. And maybe it's fallen off our radar a little bit, but it's going to be coming back on our radar, which is the United States Supreme Court. The court's term begins here in just a little while in early October and have a preview of the court's coming term, what it means, what are the important cases that we should be looking at, and maybe some broader questions about the place of the Supreme Court in American life. We're joined for that conversation this evening by Professor Adam Carrington. Uh, Dr. Carrington is professor of politics at Hillsdale College, which is a school up north, as they say here in Ohio, in that state up north. <laughs> Adam himself, however, is a native of Ohio. He got his PhD from Baylor University in uh, Texas, but was an undergraduate here at Ashland University, was an Ashbrook scholar. And I don't say this just because Adam's with us this evening, but I can say honestly that Adam is one of the very best students we've ever had here in the scholar program. Uh, and we've had a lot of terrific students. Uh, and so it's not surprising to me that in the way that he's prospering and flourishing now as a professor and as a scholar there at Hillsdale College. Uh, at Hillsdale, he teaches courses on the U.S. Constitution. He teaches courses on constitutional law. In fact, I think he's teaching a course this semester uh, on constitutional law and also an interesting course on politics and literature, which he told me this semester he's teaching Shakespeare. Always a great topic. 
uh, to run with to do with students and a small seminar that he's leading on Alexis de Tocqueville, the great French political thinker. So he's teaching a lot of courses in political thought, American politics, and the U.S. Constitution. And Adam also teaches for Ashbrook in our master's program. He's taught classes on the presidency and on the Constitution, specifically the 14th Amendment. So we're really lucky to have with us this evening a true expert on the U.S. Constitution and a great scholar of the Supreme Court. In fact, Adam has published a book on Justice Stephen Field, who was appointed to the Supreme Court by none other than Abraham Lincoln and uh, Justice Field's remarkable career on the Supreme Court and shaping it. And Adam tells me that he's actually now working on another book, this time on the early republic, and it's uh, the court's understanding in the early republic of separation of powers, which has become a very important issue, and we'll see even in the upcoming term. So we have with us tonight a great expert on the Supreme Court, on American politics and American history. It's going to be a great conversation. I uh, want to invite you into that conversation through the, question, the question and answer function, the Q&A function there on the screen. Feel free to just put your questions in. We always have a lot of them, which are terrific. Uh, don't be shy. Send them in, and we'll get to as many as we possibly can for Professor Carrington. There's so much interesting to talk about. Um, Adam, thank you for joining us this evening. It's a pleasure to be here. And I should say, as, as a former Ashbrook, um, really my love of liberal arts, my love of uh, teaching, all of those things were really kindled and developed starting there in Ashland. And so I, I feel like everything I'm doing here is just trying to pay back an unpayable debt to what you all did for me while I was there. So thank you for that very kind introduction. Of course. Terrific. Thank you for joining us again. Um, Look, the Supreme Court, it's back in the news, right? This past term, especially in the last part of the 21-22 term, at the end there in May and June, the court handed down some blockbuster opinions. Remind us, set the, set the uh, table for us for this term by going back to last term and reminding us what were some of those big important decisions and, and what do they mean for the court? Yes, it unquestionably was the biggest Supreme Court term in a generation, if not more. And for a number of reasons, you have certainly a big Second Amendment case, uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol versus Bruin, the first Second Amendment case in 12 years that the court had taken, and really, I think, has set the stage for how the Second Amendment's going to be interpreted, the standards for it, the direction the court's going to take on it in uh, the coming years. So that was very big. You have um, West Virginia versus EPA, which came out toward the very end, which was very big on separation of powers and the degree to which um, that the court is going to police government agencies and make them follow what our elected representatives have told them to uh, or not. Uh, you've got uh, a couple religion cases. So Carson v. Macon was a big case about can parents uh, use vouchers from government, uh, state governments for um, uh, uh, religious schools and to what degree can religious schools be equal partners at the table of education? And then obviously I'm teasing you all by not saying the big one. Uh, the biggest one was of course, the Dobbs case coming out of Mississippi where the uh, court overturned 
Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which obviously is one of the biggest precedents in the 20th century, if not any century, and a has been a goal of uh, certainly the political right for a long time. It, and I think, uh, and certainly a, a massive driver of presidential elections, are you going to nominate judges that are going to vote the way that people wanted on that issue? So that obviously is the biggest case in, in a generation, if not several generations. And I think what you really saw there in that term was the triumph. A lot of people talk about policies. But it really was, I think, the triumph of a certain interpretation of the Constitution or method of interpretation that people often hear as either originalism or textualism. Um, that has been kind of ascendant for a while, but for the first time, it really, I think, got a complete majority on the court. And you saw many of the decisions as a manifestation of that approach that really has been brewing for a long time. Justices like uh, uh, Clarence Thomas and then uh, Justice Scalia that used to be on the court, uh, you really saw it take a majority clearly for the first time. So remind us, because um, some of us aren't legal scholars like you, remind us of what originalism means. You say that's like last term, if we want a big takeaway is not just the particular decisions the court made, but the way it's now interpreting the Constitution has shifted toward what you call originalism. Just briefly remind us, what is originalism? Right, and it's an approach to interpreting the text of the Constitution, although it can also be to approaching regular laws. And it says, how, how do we make sure the law is binding on us? And the argument is to make it binding on us and not just have us impose our own views on it. The way originalists approach the text is to say, what was the original meaning, the meaning of the law or the part of the Constitution when it came out? And that the intent or the meaning of the lawmaker is binding on the judge when he applies and interprets it in a case. And they have uh, a, a whole system of methods that have built up around trying to discern how do you do that? How do you sort of separate out what you would like to have happen and instead find ways of saying what did the lawmakers at the time think would happen? And that's meant from their perspective to at least say um, judges shouldn't be making law. They should be interpreting and applying it. And because of that, we need to say what did the lawmakers mean when the laws actually came out? So let me ask you something. How did that philosophy, which now you're saying has become powerful on the court, how did that become powerful on the court? Is it, as you said, it was brewing for a long time, but then there were new justices on the court that embraced this or some justices that were on there that changed their minds and now they embrace this? How did originalism become so dominant on the court? It started off the way um, I think all intellectual movements do in a as a small minority in the 1970s and early 80s. And it was a reaction to the Warren court, the court under Chief Justice Earl Warren, and the approach that it took, which was very different from the originalist approach. And slowly through things like the Federalist Society, uh, Ed Meese, when he was attorney general under Reagan, uh, justices like Justice Scalia, it slowly developed as a theory. It put itself out there in legal journals, uh, more and more uh, to lawyers and judges. And just through time, 
more and more uh, judges came to embrace it and more and more presidents, especially tended to be Republican presidents, uh, nominated them. So you, you have especially what put them over the top at the Supreme Court was President Trump's three nominations to the Supreme Court, because all three, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Barrett, were self-identified uh, originalists. Although I will say, even though that's when it came up, I've been teaching this with some of my students here, the idea that you look at the, the intent of the legislator, it may have fallen out of style in the early to mid 20th century, but if you look back at 19th century judges, uh, I've showed them things from Justice, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall or uh, Justice Joseph Story, two giants of the 19th century. That's also the way they approach the text as well, to say what was the meaning at the time. But for reasons that are uh, both a combination of political and, 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 and just uh, ideological, that approach fell out of style in the early to mid 20th century and then made a comeback under the conditions that I was just talking about. Right. I know we want to talk about this upcoming term because there's so many important cases, but we're already starting to get questions from the audience. And one of them asks about the Dobbs case, which you mentioned there, which the Supreme Court handed down. It was leaked, which was pretty shocking. The opinion was leaked in, in February or March, I guess. And then but then opinion came out in June over uh, uh, as the questioner asks, would you say that the court ruled neutrally on the Dobbs case? Did they they overruled Roe? They did. They could have established perhaps a, a constitutional idea that the, the Constitution prohibits abortion. They didn't go that far. They left the issue to the states. Um, what do you make of that? Uh, decision by the court in, in terms of their approach to the Constitution, leaving the issue to the states or, I guess, even to the federal government. Mm -hmm. uh, most and, mo and you're right, mostly to the states, although the federal government could have some small role. This was, I think, an amazing thing about this is one, uh, as, a st as students of politics, we know that institutions tend to want to gain power, accrue power, uh, build up power rather than give it away. This was one of the greatest giveaways of power that any branch has done in a very long time where the court said, we are no longer going to be the arbiters and police of this question. We are going to give it back to the people, the representatives, especially the states. And I, I do think, obviously, perfect neutrality is going to be almost impossible. We're human beings. If men were angels, there'd be no need for government, as, as Madison said in Federalist 51. But as far as the court trying to say, we are not going to declare whether abortion is moral or immoral. We're not going to declare whether it should be legal or illegal. What we're going to do is leave an issue that we believe has uh, was not directly addressed by the Constitution we're going to leave it to the people and who they vote for. Um, that seems as about as close to neutral as one can get on one of the most fraught issues that has uh, bedeviled American politics over the last 50 plus years. So they, as you said, if they're all if a majority of the courts pro-life, they did not take this a, a chance to ban abortion. Uh, if they were pro-choice, they didn't take the chance to uphold it in the way it had been before. And they tried very hard to say what we're going to do is look at what were 
legislators most likely thinking when the 14th Amendment came into being, uh, when the, the Constitution itself, the original articles came into being, and painstakingly tried to say, this is what the historical record shows, that this was an issue that was largely left to the political process. So I, I think uh, for a court to give up that much power uh, 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 really shows a desire to get out of it and be more neutral than they had been up to this point on the issue. Interesting. So that that neutral or that decision which you're characterizing as neutral obviously caused, though, a big blowback. Right. Because a lot of the folks who were who were pro-choice or, or believed in Roe versus Wade as a judicial decision um, attacked the decision. The Biden administration, the president himself attacked the decision. Is that surprising to you? Uh, have we have there been times, other times in American history I'm thinking of where presidents have attacks of the Supreme Court for its decisions? Oh, absolutely. If you think you could go back to uh, Worcestershire v. Georgia, uh, Worcestershire v. Georgia, where um, uh, the the uh, Supreme Court made a decision in favor of Native American tribes against what President Andrew Jackson wanted. And this may be uh, made a, a made up quote where he says uh, Justice Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. But if it's not if he didn't literally say it, it's in his spirit of what Jackson thought about those things. You go up to the Dred Scott decision that tried to finally and permanently make a judicial um, end to the question of slavery. And that caused massive blowback from the political branches and the people. If you look at the 1930s, when the Supreme Court was not in lockstep with the New Deal and the policies of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and there was a, a, a battle there that almost resulted in court packing. So um, there have certainly been these, these blowbacks. And part of it comes from the fact that um, some people, I think, have a very different view of what a court is and what it should be doing that causes a disagreement with uh, what the justices did in a case like Dobbs. And then I think also there's obviously going to be a difference in interpretation. Uh, if you go back to Federalist 37, again, Madison, well, Publius, but Madison was the main author of that paper, says there's going to be some debates about what language means, even a written constitution. So I think, um, you know, there are people who genuinely believe that the court shouldn't have been neutral, that they should have stepped in and continued to argue for a 14th Amendment right to terminate a pregnancy. And uh, for some of that, it's because they want the courts to be more active in policy. For others, it's because they really believe a constitutional right was violated. So no, th th this has happened before. Uh, as human beings, we're going to disagree on these questions. And that's part of what our political process is set up to do, to have that discussion, not just within one branch, but among the branches and among the people as well. So last term was so big, so such significant decisions. Um, the, with the blowback, uh, it ended in June. Now we're here months later, um, but the court's term is about to start again. Are we going to see some similar big decisions this term? Yes. Now, I'm not going to advertise that this will be as big as last time. It's almost impossible just between the Second Amendment and the uh, abortion case. It's hard to top two issues that are more 
big to the American public and to the current policy debates that are going on and moral debates that are going on uh, among us as, as fellow citizens. But yes, there, there are going to be some other big cases. There's going to be a pretty notable religious liberty case coming out of Colorado. It will be in some ways the follow-up to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that people may have followed before. And it's going to really try to determine in a world after Obergefell, so the case that recognized a right to marriage regardless of the gender of the persons uh, uh, involved in, 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 the, in, the, in the union, uh, what's the future of religious liberty among those who may disagree with that, uh, with, with, with same-sex marriage? And uh, uh, the, the court's going to take up, is there a free exercise or a free speech right to someone to uh, operate a web designing company that does weddings? Can they refuse service to, to wedding couples that they, who, who they have moral or religious disagreements with? Um, another case that uh, is, is coming up is going to be uh, Moore v. Harper, which is going to ask the question of, um, to what degree do state legislatures have the power to set the conditions and terms of their own elections? And to what degree can courts and agencies step in and, and change that? And given the 2020 election and some of the changes in COVID that were done and some of the controversies about the outcome, that may be something people may be interested in. Uh, and, and then finally, I'll mention a third, although there's some others. The biggest one is there's going to be two affirmative action cases, and we can maybe get into those a little more if, if, every, if you'd like. But basically, the future of is affirmative action constitutional or must the law look at, uh, not look at, ignore the race of the persons involved in this, in these cases for admissions to schools, uh, but possibly with ramifications for every other uh, looking at race under the law, um, that could be uh, on the chopping block as well. And so you could have last term when Roe fell, this could be the term where affirmative action is declared, at least as far as public institutions, unconstitutional. So that would be a massive result in itself as well. Well, let's talk about that. Because uh, that's that, those are cases dealing with Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. One's a right. private institution, one's a public institution. Um, right. When you talk about affirmative action, you're 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 talking about the idea of those kind of institutions like Harvard considering the race of an applicant for determining whether that applicant gets into college or not. One consideration among many, but right. at least being able to consider that. Harvard says we should be able to consider that. We do consider it and we should be able to do that for the sake of having a racially diverse class, a student body. Mm -hmm. Then there's a group apparently suing Harvard saying, no, that's discrimination. Tell us about the Harvard case, the UNC case. Fill us in a little bit on that. Right. And one reason they've split them is the new justice that President Biden added, Justice Jackson has a conflict of interest on one of those cases. So, so she can sit on, on one of them. And uh, uh, so the problem, uh, the, the question for the University of North Carolina is they are a public institution run by the state of North Carolina. So can basically an arm of the government uh, engage in 
uh, uh, looking at race as one factor. For Harvard, it's the fact that they receive federal funding. And can federal funding or institutions that receive federal funding act in this way? And the big background case here is a case from just down the road from me at the University of Michigan, uh, that school up north, as you said, uh, as in addition to the state up north, which uh, Grutter v. Bollinger, which said that um, it is okay under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which says that all persons should be treated uh, with equal protection of the laws by states. Uh, they said that race can be a factor under the Equal Protection Clause as long as, as you said, it's one factor among many, as long as it's very narrowly tailored. And, and in other words, they, they, they take a very targeted approach to considering race. And as long as it's furthering what they considered a compelling purpose, which was a diversity in the classroom and the educational benefits that come out of diversity in the classroom. And so what, what the court did in that case is say there is a place for race to be considered, but it's a very narrow, tight, rare one. And so what the court's going to be considering now is, is narrow, tight, and rare itself not even good enough? Uh, and, and the question is going to be this balance or the, the, this debate between what I just said. Is um, a racially diverse classroom important enough uh, to 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 uh, allow constitutionally, or is our commitment to equality under the law undermined by that, and therefore shouldn't be considered? And that's going mm -hmm. to be you're going to be hearing colorblind constitution, but uh, as opposed to the benefits of a racially diverse classroom, which is the more constitutional approach is going to be, I think, the fundamental debate here. So it sounds like really there's a there's a possibility for a more narrow ruling, which is the court could decide not to make a big ruling like it did last year with the Dobbs and the abortion issue. It could make a more narrow ruling and say, um, we've said under our previous cases, you can use race to be admitted into University of Michigan in that case, or North Car University of North Carolina, if it's only one factor among many, but maybe North Carolina is using it too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is my understanding is they could rule that way, which would mean they wouldn't be changing their interpretation of the Constitution. They would just be saying, in this case, North Carolina is violating our previous decisions. Or they could go much further, as you suggest, maybe, and say, we're going to overrule our previous decisions altogether and just say North Carol University of North Carolina can't use race at all in admissions. Yes. Would that be overturning a lot of precedent? That in the end would be, uh, and, and and you're right. What what's typically been the case is affirmative action has been upheld in theory, but rarely in fact. Meaning most affirmative action programs have often lost in court, with a few rare exceptions, like the University of Michigan Law School, and then uh, another case down in Texas, uh, Fisher, in the early 2010s. Um, but that would be the choice. They could either affirm the basic logic of that line of cases while still striking these down, making it even more narrow in application than it's been to this point, or they could go big. And one of the cases that just one of the questions, so justices always accept a series of questions that clarify what specifically they're going to be addressing about the case. And one thing they did accept was should this whole line of precedent be overturned or not? 
and uh, I, and so they are. That is on the table. That would be going big. But you're right. Uh, it could be that the court would just clarify or modify what it's been doing up to this point. And I think what they do on that will really decide how big this term is. If they do basically affirm where they've been on affirmative action before. It's not that this case, this term won't have important cases, but right now that's the biggest one. And so how big they go on that will make a big difference. Well, I know you you don't have a crystal ball, <laughs> but given what you do, you do study the Supreme Court, you do know the justices, you do know the legal precedents. What's your prediction for this case? Are they going to rule? Are they going to uphold Harvard's system? Most people say they're not going to, or University of North Carolina's system. Most people say there'll be some a uh, deep questioning of that, maybe even striking it down. But do you think they'll go all the way as they did with the abortion issue and actually strike down affirmative action as unconstitutional? I, I think they will. I mean, obviously I could eat my words and it wouldn't be the first time I've eaten my words on a case. But I, I and here's, I, I think so for, for two reasons. One, I think the precedent for affirmative action is weaker than even what Roe and Casey were that was overturned in Dobbs because again while the court has been willing to uphold it in theory they've constantly been striking down affirmative action programs so at some point the court may say if we can't if we keep being almost never able to find a legitimate application of this in real life why do we think that in theory it's actually workable so that could happen for that reason the other is just sort of counting justices, um, because uh, obviously uh, Justice Thomas is on record as being against this, uh, uh, against affirmative action programs being constitutional uh, ever. Uh, but even a, a one swing justice I'll mention is Justice Chief Justice Roberts, who's often been willing to cross the what's perceived as the ideological divide. He wrote an opinion in 2007, uh, Parents Involved School District versus Seattle, where he wrote as the majority opinion writer, oh, uh, well, actually, he lost one vote because he said this. He says, the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Now, I'm not saying whether he's right or wrong on affirmative action, but I'm saying to write that in an affirmative action case seems to say that he might be willing to go big on this. And if he is a vote to go big and not willing to cross over to the other to 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 to, to join the, the the nominees that I think are are probably clearly in favor of affirmative action, then getting to five votes seems quite quite likely on that. So mm -hmm. that would be the weakness of the precedent and just where justices have voted in the past, having five votes seems very possible for for the bigger decision. Wow. All right. So you, that's a, that would be a, a massive decision, as you say. It would really change the law as we've had it for at least, I guess, 50 years. Affirmative action, race-based affirmative action has been around for at least 50 years in the United States. It would completely change, presumably, college admissions and the way that colleges accept and maybe filter down to other aspects of federal contracts and all the things that now involve the use of race in in the law, it would be a huge decision, as you say. Um, the other huge one that you mentioned is this religious liberty case or this freedom of speech case that's coming out of Colorado in, with regard to same sex. Fill us in on that case uh, and the same sex marriage case and this 
this website company that does um, marriage websites. Tell us a little bit more about that case and what you think are the important issues there that we should be thinking about. Right. And it's a web designer who already designs websites, but wants to. She wants to start doing wedding websites. But uh, public accommodation laws in Colorado say that if she does, it has to be open to all comers, including same-sex marriages. And she has religious objections to same-sex marriages uh, and doesn't want to do weddings for those kind of unions. And... Um, and the question is, the court has been trying to balance the uh, rights of of same-sex couples, the rights of, of of gay individuals that Obergefell and cases before it recognized on the court versus the longstanding religious liberty claims that persons make. When those kind of butt heads, how do you respect both given the court has declared both to be constitutional? And I think the most interesting thing to watch out for this is that two claims have been made. So two constitutional provisions. The one that's obvious is the free exercise clause in the First Amendment that says that uh, uh, that government, it's now been applied to the states as well, cannot violate the free exercise of religion. Um, but that an entirely different, as you mentioned, claim has been made that this also violates free speech, meaning that for the the um, for the uh, for the government to force this woman to make websites for weddings that she doesn't agree with is forcing her to speak, forcing her to an express an opinion of approval for unions that she doesn't. So free speech, by the way, we often think of just banning speech. You can't say that. Uh, free speech also means not being coerced into speaking when you don't want to. And so what's going to be interesting is, <clears throat> does the court accept one or both or neither of those arguments? And uh, you may ask, what, why is free speech even coming up? And one reason is uh, the free exercise clause has been interpreted to provide fewer protections for its claimants than the free speech clause. Uh, free exercise ever since the early 1990s has been interpreted as saying as long as religion isn't being singled out for specific bad treatment, then uh, laws that may incidentally inhibit it or violate its free exercise don't really violate the free exercise clause. So in this case, public accommodation laws apply to everyone, religious or not, that they would likely lose that, uh, the, 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 the web designer. Free speech is very different. Uh, free speech has gotten almost as close to absolute protection as the court has gotten on any issue, including it doesn't matter if the law applies to everyone equally. If it violates your ability to speak, generally the person suing the government has won. So, so wasn't there the previously yep. a case coming out of Colorado? You mentioned Masterpiece Cake. Wasn't that the case, the case a few years back about the baker who make wedding cakes, but refuse out of religious convictions to make a wedding cake for a same-sex marriage. And right. he was sued or, or forced by the state of Colorado to do it. And he said, I won't do it. And so he sued the state of Colorado to, to say, you can't make me do this. It's part of my religious liberty. Um, this case sounds a lot like that case, but what happened in that previous case? 
What happened is the court kind of punted on those fundamental questions I just said. They ruled for the baker, but what they argued was in the way he was treated by the administrative and judicial bodies of Colorado showed an animus or a bias or a uh, a, 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 basically a, 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 an attack on his religious beliefs. They were derogatory toward his religious beliefs. They didn't respect them. And that basically for that reason, they threw the decision out. Well, that's a very narrow decision. If you're just saying basically they weren't respectful enough, they left on the table those fundamental questions. But if the, if the courts or administrative bodies had treated uh, masterpiece cake shop and it's its owner respectfully who should have won they punted on that and if you want a preview of what's really going to happen here go back and read the concurring opinions so seven justices agreed uh masterpiece cake shop should have won the concurring opinion showed they had massively different reasons so justice kagan who's still in the court basically said if if colorado's um government had not been such jerks basically um then colorado should have won and and, and masterpiece cake out didn't have a real uh legitimate claim uh justice gorsuch and justice uh thomas who were in the same majority said basically uh he, he the baker should have won anyway justice gorsuch making the uh religious liberty claim through the free exercise clause justice thomas the free speech clause so those opinions all by three justices that are still on this current court are i think a preview of what this battle will actually look like where the court's going to be forced to not punt on sort of smaller questions or circumstantial questions but actually start to answer the fundamental questions of where do uh, the rights of same-sex couples and gay individuals come when they come up against religious liberty claims who should win and why given the circumstances so what's that what would what would happen if um the court rules in favor of the website designer and says for example you can't be forced to make a website with words on it, speech that supports same-sex marriage. What 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 will the ramifications of that be? It will means, it be a big blockbuster decision or not? I think it. I think it will be a big blockbuster decision, uh, um, and I think it'll be big because it will say that there are going to be significant carve-outs in generally applicable laws. Are relating to things like uh, same-sex marriage that uh, a religious persons can claim. It's going to be saying that religious persons can participate in the, the market, they can participate in the life of, of communities on terms that are in conformity with their own religious beliefs, um, and that that isn't considered so discriminatory that um, they, they could be forced to do otherwise. So uh, what, what it will mean is that there will be significant carve outs for, 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 for those litigants. And it also therefore means that uh, to that extent, um, if, if, if a same sex couple wants to work with those groups, um, uh, uh, website designers or others, that they will not have a right to do so on the terms that they want to either. Um, so that will be the big ramifications. It means, and by the way, it will, it will uh, continue what I think has been a trend on the court, which is 
the court has been very open to um, the LGBT community's claims. You could add Bostock, the claim for uh, transgenderism and for same-sex uh, employ employees, uh, the rights that they were uh, uh, afforded under uh, that decision. And the, some of those same justices are also very intensely protecting almost all religious liberty claims that are coming up. One case I didn't mention from last term was the coach praying at the 50-yard line and them carving out an exception for him to practice his faith. So the court's trying to balance that by having uh, fairly extensive protections for the LGBTQ community in general, but also pretty, excess, pretty exceptional or large carve-outs for religious claims to the contrary on that. And, and it's going to be say, here, here's yeah. an example where those two things come to a head and they clash in this particular case. Right. And, and the court uh, again, you don't have a crystal ball, but just like you uh, just like you made a prediction with the affirmative action cases. What's your prediction for this case for this term? I think that the court will fate will uh, vote in favor of the web designer, but I could see it being very narrow. And narrow being the fact, as you said, the, a website is using words. And, and and so they'll say when it's something that's forcing you to actually say something in print or verbally, then these kind of uh, uh, protections for religious liberty have to be in place. And I think they'll leave for another day about what's called expressive action is baking a cake um, expressive, uh, uh, expressing a viewpoint or not is taking photographs at a wedding uh, expressive and expressing a viewpoint or not. I, I could very well see them punting on those and saying, we'll take up that issue in a later case if we think we need to and saying, but in this case, when, when you're being forced to actually say or write something um, that does have these kind of religious liberty protections. Okay. The third big case that you mentioned was the one involving state control of their elections. As you said, that was a huge issue in the election of 2020. It's still being fought out in the media. It's still being fought out politically. There were legal challenges to the extent to which states could have control of their electoral process, the extent to which they could change them in the way people get to vote, for example, because of COVID, sometimes authorized by the law, sometimes not necessarily directly authorized by the law. Places like Pennsylvania, people made the claim that they changed uh, the way people could vote without legal authorization. That's been a contentious big issue, was big issue in 2020. It probably will come up again politically as an issue in the upcoming elections now and then again in 2024. So this is another big charged political issue. Tell us about the case, you called it Moore versus Harper. Tell us about that case and why it's so significant. Right. And, and maybe I should say this is a little different than claims of voter fraud in the 2020 election. That was kind of a separate question. This is uh, the question of changing one's laws, election laws and who can change them. And so what uh, but at, what this actually comes out of is redistricting. So there's a census every 10 years and states are reallocated how many House members and House districts they have. And so North Carolina was redistricting in light of the 2020 census, redrawing their U.S. congressional lines. And uh, a state court in, in North Carolina struck down that redistricting as violating the state constitution. So not the U.S. constitution, but the state constitution as what was called a partisan gerrymander. So gerrymandering being you're drawing the lines in weird 
uh, obscure ways to try to get a certain outcome as far as how the districts are going to play out and that this was a partisan one that it was stacked so that even though North Carolina is kind of a 50-50 state, that it would have an overwhelmingly Republican representation. And so the state court struck that down, said it's unconstitutional according to our state constitution, and we're going to appoint a commission of expert administrators to draw a different map, and that's going to be the map. All right. And so what state legislators in North Carolina sued about is they said that you're not state courts are not allowed to do two things. They can't nullify legislatively drawn districts and they can't institute their own. Uh, and where they get this is uh, uh, how does this get into a U.S. court, right? A, like the Supreme Court when it seems like a state issue. Uh, Article one, section four, and I'll actually quote it, uh, says the time places and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed by each state by the legislature thereof. And then it also says Congress can step in and uh, adjust those regulations if it wants. But the idea is it says the legislature is supposed to be making these calls. And so what this will test, as you were uh, uh, already previewing, is how unilateral is that power? can uh, it, yes the state legislature is supposed to pass those laws but does the a state constitution have a role does a court have a role to step in and say uh the state legislature has to follow its own constitution in those in, in that role or or can the state legislature just do whatever it wants and then the second thing is uh, a sort of wrinkle in this is this legislature had passed a law basically allowing uh the, the the courts to establish a commission like this but one of the questions is is that constitutional or does the fact that the constitution gives the state legislatures that power mean not even the state legislature can give up that that authority and, and this is where this implicates i'll just say very quickly the bigger question of uh uh, uh can uh legislative bodies state or national consistent with the separation of powers give away their legislative power to courts or to commissioners, to bureaucrats or not, in addition to can state other bodies like courts step in and try to take that power. So, well, uh, you know, that's interesting issues. because yeah. that's been a huge issue here in Ohio. And I know it's been a big issue in lots of states around the country redistricting. And the in Ohio, we've had a commission that was created by a constitutional amendment that to set the uh, legislative boundaries for the state legislature, for example, and it was struck down by the Ohio Supreme Court by four to three vote, very close, um, went back, the commission tried to do it again, back and forth. What's really interesting is that as you know that the legislature, and this also was true of congressional districts, the legislature was not directly involved. Mm -hmm. This seems like a really important issue because it really determines who gets to set the boundaries for the, in which our districts for our U.S. representatives are elected, which could change the composition of the House. It could go Republican, it could go Democrat, based on these districts. Okay. It, is this a new issue for the court to face here in 2022? It is as far as them taking up this kind of question. And I think the COVID era really forced this issue out into the forefront. It's not that 
minor things like this had hadn't been going on or even uh, significant things hadn't been going on, but it hadn't been in front of the American people that often other bodies than the legislature were either because the legislature delegated or for other reasons were often making these rules. And I think that, uh, again, you're right. The, the underlying question here is, I think, twofold. One, how close should how we decide who represents us be connected to who we have already elected to represent us? So the consent of the governed is a background question. How do we respect consent of the governed? Uh, on the other hand is the question of separation of powers. How do we respect that our system of representative government has distinguished between what lawmakers do, what executive officers do, and what judicial officers do, and respecting that the way we express the consent of the governed is through uh, uh, the rule of law and the tripartite system that separation of powers itself is trying to uphold. Uh, is the rule of law. So how do you combine the rule of law and the consent of the governed? I think that's the underlying issue that's really being gotten at in what see, could otherwise be seen as kind of a technical legal election law case. Wow, that's a big, I mean, boy, you the way you've laid out these three cases, there's some big principles that uh, that define our constitution at stake in these cases this term. Um, amazing interesting because it's really going to force the justices and us as citizens i think to kind of think through what are these big principles and how can we reconcile them and put them together um what about a case that maybe is off the radar just just a surprise case an interesting case a case that people might be fascinated by or interested in if they're you know thinking about the supreme court that maybe is not one of these giant ones but particularly interesting Right. One I'll find very interesting is called United States v. Texas, which I think Tex Texans are proud to have anything that says <laughs> so that, the U.S. That, that is way. fighting Texas in court. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and 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 the it has to do with immigration and the uh, guidance that was put out by the Biden administration on how to prioritize uh, uh Im immigrants who are here illegally uh how deportation goes and 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 what kind of persons to to uh, accentuate to to prioritize for deportation but uh while immigration itself is a real hot and button issue uh flying under the radar with this case is going to be how um how much leeway does the executive branch have in immigration policy and what crosses the line between enforcing the law and making the law oneself as an executive officer. And so uh, similarly, in some ways, it's a companion case to, 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 to the, uh, the Moore case of how do we police the separation of powers so lawmaking is being done where it's supposed to and law enforcement where it is supposed to and what role does the court have in policing those kind of boundaries so you're right i i mean if you go between those cases about separation of powers the affirmative action case which is really asking what does the principle of equality mean for us i mean how much more fundamental can you get than all men are created equal and what the law means about that uh, and you combine that with the religious liberty case, which is how do we respect the rights of uh, uh, the rights that we have recognized, including the religious liberty right, but also uh, other individual rights that we've recognized. If you go rights, consent, equality, liberty, I mean, those are uh, uh, the fundamental questions that whatever their 
particular forms take, we as Americans are always trying to figure out so that we can be uh, faithful to our constitution and our founding principles. Wow, that is a fascinating look at the upcoming term. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, to join us uh, for this. Uh, really interesting. We'll be on the lookout. We'll be on the lookout for the affirmative action case. We'll be on the lookout for the religious liberty case from Colorado. And we'll be look out, on the lookout from this North Carolina case on states, legislatures, and U.S. v. Texas. Uh, we'll be on the lookout for all these cases. Folks will, now when they see them in the newspapers and they come out on the news, they'll say, hey, wait, I've heard that case. I thought Professor Carrington <laughs> talked about that. That's terrific. Thank yeah. you for taking the time to be with us. I want to thank all of you for joining us this evening from around the country. We really appreciate you taking the time. It's The Supreme Court is such an important institution in our public life, and we're Really fortunate to have a scholar like Adam Carrington to be able to help us understand more about the court, its previous decisions, and the decisions that it might be making this term. Uh, it's a great conversation for us and to continue thinking about these big principles of equality and liberty and consent of the governed and the rule of law that Professor Carrington was talking about. We really believe here at Ashbrook that those kind of conversations and that kind of thinking is exactly what we need if we're going to restore and preserve the founders' experiment in self-government that they handed down to us. And we really think that's our mission. And we thank you all for joining us in that mission. Uh, we think that when you talk about these things and think them through, you not only gain insight for the current time, but you renew your own understanding of those fundamental principles. And we always believe with that renewal, there's a, there's a hope that comes from that, that this experiment in self-government can survive. And so we always, I always want to end on that hopeful note and wish you all a good evening. Stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay connected with Ashbrook. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us.